This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. So we are back in the studio today with my main man, Robbie Shaw. We are journeying back into our personal stories again today. This is going to be the third in this series, our last and final co-host. I've known who who Robbie was for a while, and when I was talking about moving back to Charlotte a few years ago, several of my of my close friends that were also friends of Robbie's on several different occasions said, hey, you got to get in touch with Robbie, you got to get in touch with Robbie, do you know Robbie, do you know Robbie, and and we had actually never really crossed paths. And when I got back into town, I don't even remember how we connected originally. Um, I think we connected on social media. Yeah, we connected somehow and went out to lunch and just kind of hit it off and realized that, that our passions and, and kind of life missions aligned. And then a few, I don't know, a couple months later, Robbie started talking about the podcast and the rest was history. I know a little bit of Robbie's story. I know kind of some of the big big points that he's probably going to touch on today and some of the things that influenced you know him moving into a sober life um but I'm really I'm really excited to kind of hear a little bit of the back history and uh and family history let's get it rolling <laughs> Take it, take it as far back as you can remember, man. I mean, we, we don't, you know, what was your first kind of family memory growing up? How old were you? Yeah, so I grew up in a in an interesting household, I think. It, it's My dad was an entrepreneur, and, you know, he had his wins and he had his losses. And I think during my upbringing, the window of the most influential years or the most formative years, he was on a pretty big high uh, as far as business went. So I was born into a family that was uh, fortunate, for sure. I had opportunities. I, you know, I had things that I wanted. I had friends, and I had a loving family. We were very social. My parents always had parties. They were always going out. They were, you know, we had people over all the time. My memories early on of that kind of world were just, it was really around Carolina game, <laughs> UNC sports games. Uh, that's like my first memory is just like all these adults in my basement watching Carolina football or Carolina basketball and just all this yelling and all this drinking and all this smoking cigarettes. And like, I remember I would go down into the basement and they would ask me to like do shit and like dance or, 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 or always like put me on the spot. And it was just always very... It wasn't scary, but I definitely avoided it. You know, at, at my early age, earlier ages, I, I avoided that scene. It was just loud and obnoxious and scary and ugh. I mean, where was this? Born and raised in Charlotte. Um, spent three years at a house over in a neighborhood, and then my dad, um, you know, had some sort of success and, and ended up buying a nice house in a nice neighborhood, and that's where I grew up. Uh, we had a big basement and big TV down there, and that's where these kinds of uh, get-togethers were going on. That's where you danced. That's where I danced, and that's where I did lots of other things as I grew older. Uh, it was our kind of our playroom. My first memories were just a lot. You know, I remember Gabby Reese talking about, like, the way things smelled. And there was just, just this nostalgia in, 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 like, her memories of of men and, and what it 
what it looked and smelled and felt like, you know, in the adult world from a kid's perspective. And, and I remember that so vividly. I remember this, mostly the cigarette smoke. Mm-hmm. Like that, when I smell cigarettes on like a winter jacket, <laughs> I mean, I just, all I can think about is like my parents coming in at night after being out or me walking down into our basement and just everybody's got cigarettes and you know, cocktail glasses clinging and screaming at the TV and then yelling over at me. And, oh, man, just not bad memories, just just memories. So my dad, you know, I think it would probably be safe to say he was a functioning alcoholic. And, and as, you know, Jeff and Deborah J say, they were, he's functioning outside of the home, which mm-hmm. I loved. Um, <laughs> yeah. But he very much was. Uh, you know, he, he, he very much functioned. And then when I was in fourth grade and my older brother who's five and a half years older than me um my best friend big al big Big house um you know he um he had a pretty rough experience he had a he had a car crash with a buddy of his the buddy of his died and my brother almost died it was a very traumatic event obviously for everyone in the family a beloved doctor's essentially saved his life and you know he recovered from that for I mean it took a long time um physically and you know mentally I was too young to understand kind of what was going on but I I can only assume it took a toll on everyone emotionally uh specifically my parents but again I was in fourth grade and didn't really know what was going on it was kind of shielded from me uh or kind of hidden from me I went and stayed at a buddy's house for, you know, weeks on end and just didn't really know what was going on until finally my brother was okay, you know, post-surgery and, and was in the hospital for months, you know, rehabbing and, and learning how to function again. And uh, I would go visit him and I remember those smells. I will never, never not be able to remove that smell uh, the first time I walked into his hospital room. <sighs> That probably was the beginning of, I would call that a pivotal moment in my family's life. I don't really know what it changed or how it changed everybody, but it did. I remember being in like fifth and sixth grade and making the declaration that I would never drink because of that event. And, uh, you know, it was a drinking and driving accident. So that's what I associated it with. And, you know, you're in fifth, fourth, fifth and sixth grade. You got dare coming to school. Mm-hmm. And it's just say no, say no, say no. And I'm listening and I've got that experience in the back of my head. And all I am thinking is, man, I'm, I'm never going to do that. I'm never going to drink. I'm never going to do drugs. Da, 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 da. Well, I mean, I think it was a year and a half later yeah. was the first time that I drank. Um, and I don't know what that means. I wish I could explain that, but I think it probably goes without saying there was some emotional trauma, um, some emotional confusion, you know, whatever you want to call it in a, in a pressure. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I was, what age is that? Like 12 or I was 11, 10. I think I was 10 when the wreck happened. So I had my first experiment with alcohol when I was in sixth grade, PTA meeting. All the kids were running around uh, on bicycles, and we went to a guy's house, and, uh, you know, he offered up some beers, and, you know, we drank them. Were they hot? That was it. They were in the fridge, and I don't know why he would have done that, because I'm sure he got in trouble for it. But I think he wanted some friends, and so he offered (laughs) offered us some beers. 
Uh, but I do remember the feeling. I didn't drink enough to really get a, re- a you know, the buzz that I got later when I drank more. But I, I do remember the feeling. I remember riding my bike down the street and looking up in the sky and having this like glow. And I liked it. I think the key to that part is that it broke the seal. It was it was um, the covenant. Yeah, totally. And I definitely felt good after it. I'm not exactly sure how long it was before I drank again, but it was pretty soon. I think it was probably that summer or maybe the following year in seventh grade. But then I got a hold of some liquor and went out with some friends and, you know, got drunk to the point of throwing up. And my mom had to come pick me up um, from a friend's house. You know, we lied. Sorry, Mom. I think you already know this. Ate some bad shrimp. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Bad, bad pizza or something. It's a terrible lie. <laughs> and I remember getting in the car and just had, like, puke on my breath. What I remember specifically is how shitty I felt, coupled with the fact that I couldn't wait to do it again. And, and you hear that a lot, and I'll say it too. You know, it, it didn't matter that I got sick. It didn't matter that I had a pretty horrific experience. I couldn't wait to do it again. And I think it had to do with those, you know, first 20 minutes of feeling that buzz, that glee, that that euphoria, that wholeness I felt. Um, you know, I've picked this apart in therapy for years. I, you know, I don't know. I don't. I don't. I don't remember having a big hole in my, you know, existence and needing to fill it. Like I'm fucking 13 years old. I don't, I don't remember that shit. So, I just know that it made me feel damn good, and it got rid of all my little insecurities as alcohol would do for a 13 year old mm-hmm. uh, you know it's not that i had anything weird with me it's if you drink at a th- when you're 13 it's going to make you feel good and it's going to make you feel something you've never felt before and that's going to be exciting the reason that you probably loved to do that again after being sick was a good sign of alcohol early stages of alcoholism the way i understand it is there are lots of factors and genetics is one of them what i think was passed down to me was definitely mental health issues i do think my dad suffered from depression his dad suffered from depression his and on and on and on and on and the only reason i say that is because they were all big drinkers Mm -hmm. you know alcoholism wasn't passed on to me it was whatever was creating the need for alcohol was passed on to me. And so I do think that's the genetic piece that I, that I inherited from my dad because none of that was on my mom's side at all, as far as I know, but it was very deep on my dad's side. And I just kind of considered myself to be, you know, the product of a very social, um, drinking family you know I mean that's just what we did and that's what I began to do and it wasn't weird there was a big group of people that I did it with and that's that was life there weren't that many consequences in fact I was doing pretty damn well at things but it does relate back to the fact that my family was doing well uh during that period of time financially because I always have to make sure that people know this because there was a there was an entitlement in me. There was a a sense of, I mean, I was spoiled. I was, I mean, I'll admit it, and my mom doesn't like to hear that, and I'm sorry, but I was spoiled emotionally and externally. I got what I wanted, and you know, I performed well, and I got to do the things I wanted to do. And any time that I did get in trouble, I was bailed out, and that was kind of the uh, preservation of our reputation. You know what comes with that kind of, you know, success inside of a family uh, is a reputation to uphold. 
And I think that was very important to my family and my, my parents specifically. And so when there were red flags, when there were little instances of me getting drunk and puking, uh, yeah, we're going to push that right under the rug and keep on moving. And not just for other people, but for me too. It was like, you know, don't worry about it, Robbie. Let's just, yeah, let's just I mean, I put that behind you and keep on plowing. Well, I mean, at that time in our culture, that was kind of the norm. It's what you, right, exactly, you know? exactly. And, and I don't think that is unique to, to me or my family. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, look back at it as... As my both of my parents came from no money, they they came from nothing, and you know my dad built our family up with his own you know s- business acumen and and his skill set, and and he did a great job at it. But the result was a young kid who you know grew up in a lifestyle that wasn't necessarily uh, reality. Mm. And the reason I'm uh, I talk about this extensively is is the next phase of life in in my experience is college. And that's when I'm out of the household and I'm on my own to deal with wild real life shit. I very quickly <laughs> ran from that. <laughs> realized that I was not very good at dealing with real life shit. You know, anything that happened that was upsetting or, or emotional or, or something that, that I created um, strife for myself was my fault. You know, I couldn't blame it on anything else. So my sophomore year in college, um, you know, I'm up at Chapel Hill and I'm playing on the JV basketball team. And I mean, I, I don't even know how to explain my freshman year in college. I was, I mean, I was, you know, I was on top of the world, mm-hmm. essentially. I mean, I got into Carolina, I joined a fraternity, all these dudes and all my friends and the partying and the girls and I'm playing basketball on one of the most respectable programs in the world and and I mean I am on top of the world I've got a girlfriend who's a junior when I'm a freshman I mean it just was all probably a little overwhelming and and that everything was just so damn sweet because I just kept kept rolling with it and kept drinking harder and going harder and and being more and more fucking popular and douchebaggy and you know <laughs> I look back and I, I, I don't love that guy I don't love that guy king of the hill but uh but it's what it was and then you know summer after freshman year I did cocaine for the first time and I just got right into it man I was right before a widespread panic show and I was with all my boys and and I thought I saw some people going upstairs and going into a room and I think I knew exactly what they were doing and I saw one of my best friends going up there and I felt very comfortable and I knew I wanted to try it and I went and tried it I don't know if I can compare that to really any other feeling and and like you hear so often I chased that feeling for for the next uh, decade. Was it from the Coke or the glamour? Uh, <laughs> it was not glamour for sure. It was the Coke. Yeah, what a what a feeling. And then I went off on a uh, forty day, um, uh, you know, n- uh, outdoor leadership school program uh, the the following day. And so I partied that night. Next day, pack up, fly to Alaska, and head off into the, the Denali wilderness for forty days. Um, with nothing but a backpack and a tent. And all I could think about was getting back and doing some more. Exactly. God damn it. That sucked. Oh, what a fucking waste. I know. I know. It's so true, though. I remember there there being a couple of older guys on my trip with me, and I was trying to talk to them about it. And I think one of them might have been sober. (laughs) (laughs) Didn't really want to talk about it. Shut up, dude. Shut up, kid. 
Yeah, exactly. I mean, I came back. I think within the first three or four days I was back, I, I had done it again. Here we go. So uh, when I get back to college my so- sophomore year, now I'm, I'm a little big for my britches, and I'm starting to party more than hang out with my girlfriend. And this led to uh, some undesirable behavior uh, <laughs> as it goes Elaborate for a relationship. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm talking to other girls. I'm talking to, to, to other girls, and I'm staying out late with other girls, and I'm just doing what a dipshit guy would do. And I lose my girlfriend. And so she was my first love. And then my, whatever you want to call it, the evolution of, of me using and drinking and partying and getting getting overwhelmed and doing all that shit led to the the demise of a relationship that I I really loved. And then of course I did everything to try to get her back and I couldn't get her back and that was like the first time in my life that I had truly been heartbroken. Mm-hmm. And and not even heartbroken, just well, heartbroken ultimately, but just told no. You know, I mean I was a yeah. f- I mean I was told no. No, you can't have what you fucking want, kid. You know, you can't have no. everything you want. Dare and, she. And I didn't know how to handle that. I'd never felt that before. Uh, you know, I was the guy that broke up with girls before. And, man, boy, did I get served a little humble pie there. And I needed it. And, of course, looking back, it is the greatest thing that ever happened to me. And at the same time, it was one of the hardest things that I've ever been through. Ultimately, to say it was the beginning of my self-medication because mm-hmm. I I had never felt that way before. I had never been depressed. I had never had anxiety. I had never felt the guilt and shame that I felt during this experience. And so I drank and smoked weed and did coke to feel better every single day. Did you know that you were doing that? I did. It was the first time I knew I was doing it. It was the first time where I would wake up and f- start to feel it. My, I would get that pit in my stomach. I would start gagging. My throat would close up, and I would drink to make it go away. And you could differentiate that between, like, a hangover or withdrawal or... Yes, I knew... You knew that it was coming uh, from some type of emotional pain. 100%. So during that time when I was having those that experience of, of just heartbreak and, and self-medication, I... For the first time, I had to go meet with my advisor, and uh, I was nervous. And, like, I didn't know why I was so nervous. And I was like, God, I mean, you know, I've never really been, like, nervous like this before. And and I started walking across campus, and my stomach started feeling weird. I started getting a little hot, and then I started going, holy shit, I'm going to fucking throw up in front of all these people. And this is, you know, Chapel Hill campus. There's girls everywhere. There's guys everywhere. And I fucking throw. Well, looking at you. Yeah, that's what it felt like. <laughs> and I was so scared of throwing up that it made me throw up. And so I run off into a bush and I'm making all this loud noise. And people, like dudes that I know, are yelling across the yard and like, oh, Robbie, <laughs> like doing all that shit. And girls are like, oh, God, Robbie, that's disgusting. And it was the most embarrassing thing. <laughs> That had ever fucking happened to me. I was there. It was so terrible. I didn't know what to do. I wanted to just fall down to my knees, and but I couldn't. Everybody was looking at me, and that began ten years of panic attacks that involved throwing up, and that was like this thing, man. It was just this part of like my existence for from age twenty to like twenty nine. So so nine years. My friends, my family, my brother, like everybody knew that I had a 
panic attack throw up problem. And like people would tell me, like, dude, you get like well, would bef- they like tr- like mess with you and like try to incite panic attacks? No, <laughs> no, they wouldn't. But they would definitely make fun of me. Um, I mean, I definitely had friends that would that knew it was coming because yeah. it was always like after I'd eaten dinner. Like if I was going out with a group of people and we were eat dinner, like they knew that I was going to have to run to the bathroom before we'd go out to bars or whatever and throw up because I could not handle being out in social situations. With food in my stomach, I mean, it, it, that's what it became. Like, I couldn't eat. If I had an empty stomach, mentally, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have a panic attack because I knew I had nothing to throw up. But if I had anything in there to throw up, the panic attacks would start, and I would just start rolling and rolling and rolling and, and eventually throw up. It fucking sucked, man. And it, it was so embarrassing and such a rough thing to have to deal with. But it was also, you know, it was because I was out the night before. <laughs> Four, you know. I yeah. mean, like if I took three days I mean, off, that's of kind of what I, yeah, what I was asking. Like, the, it was it was it alcohol, and do you think? I mean, I, the panic, yes, the anxiety, the depression, like the mental aspect of it was absolutely alcohol induced. If I could have taken five days off, which uh, you think the panic attacks would have gone away? They did. The, whenever I had to do that, mm-hmm. they went away. So yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, it was like this weird alcohol induced panic disorder. Totally. I mean, I think that's well, alcohol and coke <laughs> induced. I mean, that, that didn't help the anxiety the following morning. Anyway, so I'm playing basketball again. And man, now I, I am, I'm not doing so hot. I'm, I'm definitely <laughs> using and drinking a lot more than I was freshman year. I'm showing up to practice super hungover, s- sweating, stinking. My performance is terrible. I'm not playing in any games. Um, and towards the you know the second part of the season, I'm not even showing up for practices. I basically like told my coach, who was freaking Phil Ford, yeah. I mean Hall of Fame basketball player, like one of like a god. I mean he's a god yeah. in the basketball world, and he was my coach. And man, I was lying to him, and I basically had to tell him I was like, man, I'm, I think I'm done with basketball. And he's like, that's fine. He's like, I can see what's going on, but he basically said, just don't quit. Come to the games. And just finish out the season, and I, I did just that. And I remember the final game of the season. He put these, these few guys that were finishing up their their basketball careers, uh, to start that game, the final game of the season. And I'm standing in the huddle, three minutes before the game starts, and I have to run to the bathroom to throw up, oh. in the fucking Dean Dome. I mean, one of the most reputable places in the country and I'm standing on the Carolina blue and bright brown basketball court where Michael Jordan played where everybody played and I've got to run back to the bathroom to puke because I was having a panic attack I'd been out all night oh man so I mean you know I called my parents like junior year college I mean I'm failing out I had to tell them that I'm doing drugs like you know all that why? Kind of, all that kind of stuff started because they I they needed to know why my grades were all F's yeah <laughs> and my attendance was all zero percent promise I'm not this dumb mom uh, exactly I'm doing blow well and and, and I also wanted help like yeah. I was so low and so down and and just unhappy with everything that like I needed I needed help and I wanted help and so like that was the first time that I had called home and, and like told my mom and dad that like I was doing cocaine. Oh man. I mean, that was new for them. Like that wasn't, hmm. that wasn't part of their lives. And so 
that was a big shocker. And so it was like, all right, come home. Let's get you fixed up. So, I, you know, I go home. What did that look like? That, well, <laughs> here's exactly what it looked like. And it, 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 it's me coming home, crying, being very sad, holding up in my bedroom for a, f- a few days, uh, getting back in order, you know, stopping drinking and, and doing whatever for just a few days until the panic attacks and everything went away. And then start started back up again. So this process, starting my junior year, I didn't graduate from college for seven and a half years. So sounds about right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, I didn't just come home from college once. I came home probably three or four times. Van Wilder. <laughs> right. And I would take classes at home, and then I would, you know, take online classes, and I would work, and I would just still be partying with my friends that lived in Charlotte and man I mean I gotta say those were fun times Uh, yeah I mean all of it there was there was a lot a lot a lot of fun but it it just I don't know man looking back it was just not like the nights were fun and the mornings were hell every I mean for 10 years that's how it was I never woke up happy I, I I was only happy when I was using, when I was drinking and when I was drugging and partying with friends. That was the only time I was happy. And then every day I woke up sad, depressed, guilt-ridden, and and anxious and, you know, on the verge of a panic attack. So in those years when I'm, you know, in and out of college, back in Charlotte, working different jobs, uh, I'm still partying harder and harder. Um, I got a big DUI. So I had, a, I had a previous DUI while I was um, in college, uh, just on a weekend, and that put me on some sort of driving you know, restriction. And then I got a big, bad DUI. What, what, is, what does that mean? It just means I wasn't supposed to be driving. I, what I blew was outrageous. I was all by myself. I essentially told the cop to cuff me. When he walked up to the car, Take me I was like, away. Get, get me from behind this wheel, please. You know, it's two in the morning. I've got to work the next day. I go to jail. My mom comes and you know bails me out at four in the morning, takes me home. I go to bed for like an hour and a half, wake up and have to go to work. Ugh. Yeah, yeah. That was a rough, rough one the next day. And so then I lost my license. I lost my license for like six years. Fast forward a little bit, I end up graduating from Chapel Hill. Big celebration. Yay, Robbie. Good for you. Um, Now, because you don't have a license, why don't you do what you wanted to do, which was move to New York City. Uh, And since you don't have a license, what better place to live than New York City? Don't mind the The addiction to uh, (laughs) cocaine and alcohol. Um, Let's put you right in the devil's den. And that is what it was. I moved up to New York City. It was no holds barred for three years. What um, were you doing for work? <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, not much, man. <laughs> I was just trying all kinds of different things. At one at one point, I was doing some improv comedy, which was a blast. And I was. Is there any video footage of that? There's maybe one video of me. You know, what's funny is I did a skit where I had a panic, where I acted out having a panic attack, and had a real one, <laughs> and just had a real one on stage. Uh, if anybody has footage of Robbie's <laughs> improv comedy career, I will pay top dollar for it. It was decent. It was decent. I had teachers tell me I had something, but little, an email. little did they know it was, you know, I was a pint of 100 proof vodka deep, you know, going into every one of those classes. I worked on Wall Street for a year trying to go that route. Um, that was probably 
one of my better experiences because I had to wear a suit and a tie and be there at 7 a.m. every day. But towards the end... You got to start using Coke in the mornings. <laughs> right. Uh, that, you know, and everything progressed in New York City. And what happened there towards the end was I was drinking in the mornings. So nice guess there, Pat. Towards the end, I'm... My addiction to alcohol had evolved to the point where I couldn't get out of bed without it. Um, the anxiety, everything, the depression, the guilt was so extreme that uh, I would drink before I went to work. There were days where I wouldn't remember leaving work. And then, of course, wake up the next day knowing that I left work in a blackout, you know, what just led a little bit more to, you know, the the need to drink again before I went to work that day. And it just went and went and it, it didn't last very long. Um, and right about this time, <laughs> oddly enough, I met my now wife. So I met my wife uh, ultimately while I was towards the end of my, you know, partying career. You know, I was, I was a professional. I could, I could hide it pretty damn well. Uh, uh, you know, if, if she saw me in the morning, sure you could. well, you're right. <laughs> I mean, I couldn't hide it that well, but she didn't live in New York. She lived in, and she was in medical school. And, and so we didn't see each other as much. It was a long distance kind of thing. So it was easier for me to hide. I could pull it together when she came and visited and, you know, I fell in love with her. And I told her early on when we met that I was probably eventually going to have to quit drinking. And she didn't quite grasp, you know, the complexity in that statement, but, uh, but I did know it. Um, you know, all this time of, of dealing with this stuff uh, and drinking to, to drown out all this stuff, I knew in the back of my head that eventually I was going to have to quit. I mean, I, I was not in denial. It, I, was just t I just welcomed it. It was mm -hmm. like, I am, an waiting. I am an alcoholic, and I'm going to be one until until I have to stop or, or whatever. And, and so when I met my now wife, Ashley, I knew that, uh, that this was going to be what, what was going to push me over the edge. You know, I'd like to give her a lot of credit in, in, in just being the human that she is and, and me knowing that I wanted to be with someone like this and that I couldn't be with someone like this if I kept going down the path I was going down. I couldn't be alive if I was going down the path I was going down, but I also could not just, there was no way that I could foresee a life with anyone, albeit someone who was in medical school and very self-driven and very, uh, you know, perfect in my eyes. I don't know whether I did it subconsciously or, or whether I just, you know, eventually got to a point where I, I had to make the call. I fizzled out in New York City. Those days of blacking out at work didn't last very long. I eventually told you know, my job that I, I was going to have to quit. And, and then I told all my friends I was, I had to go home and I called home again and said, I'm coming home. I'm done with New York. So I came home, tried to detox, wasn't able to do it. Um, I was too deep at this point. You know, at this point, my dad's alcoholism had really escalated. All while I'm going through what I'm going through, my dad's going through very similar. And so we're kind of doing it at the same time, yeah. which is a little bit fascinating. Um, and I'm, I think if I dug deep, I could, f I could probably make sense of it in that, you know, my struggles were creating, you know, stress in his life and his struggles were creating it in mine. And we were just kind of playing off each other and, and 
you know, he didn't get better, and so I didn't get better. And so we just kept on doing what we were doing until finally, um, after I came home and I was living with a friend of mine because I, I couldn't live at home anymore. And I mean, at this point, I am laying in bed all day, every day, uh, drink, pass out, wake up, drink, pass out for, for weeks. You know, there's bottles under the bed and all that kind of stuff. And then I call my brother. My brother's always who I call when, when things are rough and tell him I've got to go get help now and I'm ready and I'm ready to stop drinking. And so I do. Uh, we, we get it all lined up. I go off for treatment. I take it very seriously. I'm ready to stop drinking. I've accepted I cannot control my alcohol. I don't ever want to do cocaine again. I'm, I'm ready. But in the back of my mind, I I don't think I'm hanging on to the fact that I'm not going to stay sober for the rest of my life. That that's the one thing I'm holding on to is that I'll give you all the acceptance, all the surrender, all the stuff, but for I now. for now. But I know that I want to be able to have a big night every now and then. And 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 what was hanging on in the back of my head was like this this vision of like my wedding. And how the fuck am I going to get married and not clang mm -hmm. a sh champagne glass? And so that's you all. Can, you just can't drink it. <laughs> right, clang it and throw it. And so, I, like, I was hanging on to that. And, and that's, you know, that's, if you're hanging on to anything, it's going to fester. And, and so I got back from treatment, was sober for six months, and knew I was going to give it one more shot. I knew. <laughs> I couldn't knew wait it. until the wedding, could God, you? Damn it, I couldn't do it. And I knew that I was going to have one <laughs> night. So I'm back from treatment. I'm sober. I'm going to meetings. I've got a sponsor. I'm doing everything I know how to do to just get my shit together. And at the same time, I'm going and checking to see if my dad's alive daily. Because mm -hmm. my mom has left, not permanently, but when my dad would go into these binges, he would do what I was doing. He would lay in bed for weeks and he would drink, pass out, drink, pass out. He was in his 60s and your body can't take it like a... 20 something year old and so it was a very different scene than mine we really every time I walked into that house I didn't know if he was alive or dead and I didn't want my mom doing it often my my brother and I were those people that had to go check and see if he was alive and he was every single time he might be on the floor he might be somewhere else um but he was alive. And typically after those kinds of stints, we would have to call 911 or he would call 911. He'd go to the hospital. He almost died, I think, over like 12 different times. Doctors called him an, an anomaly, a, a cat with nine lives. It was just this kind of freak of nature. And, and every time he'd come, come home or pop out of it and, and live through, you know, sepsis and double pneumonia and collapsed lungs and all this crazy shit, he'd come home and start drinking again. And that was all happening while I was freshly sober. Mm. And I remember one specific night he was going through withdrawals and, and was, you know, I knew what withdrawals were. I'd, I'd gone through them many times and I had to go down to the ABC store and get liquor for him and, you know, save his life with liquor. And I'm two months sober. Yeah. You know, it was a... It'd be hard. It was a tough time. You step up to the occasion and you don't really know what it's doing to you until later. Uh, I still don't quite know what it did to me. It definitely had an effect on me. Uh, I think it's a lot of trauma. Um, you know, slow, slow kind of progressive trauma. And also grief because, you know, he, he ultimately, you know, was on his deathbed multiple times. And what that does to a 20-something-year-old 
you know, accepting that your dad is going to die and then he doesn't. It's a little bit of an emotional confusion. <laughs> You'd never wish death on anybody, but you start to wish death. You know, it would just be easier on everybody if, if you die. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, he, and, you know, he went on for another 10 years in and out of the hospitals uh, until he eventually died. And I think that was a big relief. But at the same time, I think there's grief. There's, there's all kinds of stuff as a result of that that I'm still trying to explore and, and figure out what it's created in me. So let's go back to the big bad relapse. And the big bad relapse is me going for one night, you know, me looking in the mirror and going, all right, Robbie, you got one night, buddy. Let's get it done tonight. And then you're going to get back on track tomorrow. You're going to start going to meetings again. You know, you're going to just fall right back in line. You know, wouldn't that be nice if you could just do that? Uh, And so it works out that way. (laughs) I mean, God, wouldn't that be just wonderful if we could do that? Uh, No, it wouldn't. How planned was it? It was pretty so like pl- a week. No, or like it an was hour. it was really that day. I think I knew it was coming. It was the perfect storm in that my 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 girlfriend was traveling in South America. My mother was at home. I went and visited her. I think I went and I like <laughs> so I, I covered all my bases. <laughs> yeah, covered everything and and didn't you know to make sure that nobody was gonna pop by that mm-hmm. night. And I did it all by myself, too, because that's how I like to party. Uh, you know, I got to the point where, you know, I wasn't very social. I wasn't very fun to be around. Um, so I, I did that stuff, you know, in the confines of my own isolation. And that's how I did it that night. Um, I took that bottle and I poured that vodka straight down my throat. And I literally, you know, if you know what bonging is, I bonged it. <laughs> because I wanted it in my system and in my blood without any, like dancing and t- and battling it in my head it's like fuck it do it and do mm-hmm. it now and let's get it going and so i did and within 30 minutes i had called the called my guy and had a bag of coke and locked all my doors and shut all my blinds and got it done that night and then the funny thing is i woke up the next day and i didn't feel any guilt and shame I, you know, I was so proud of myself for <laughs> having gone to treatment and having gone six months that I didn't have the anxiety and, the, and all the shit that I had before. I could do it. And so, and so that's ex- exactly. So I'm sitting there and I'm like looking around and I'm like, it worked. Let's do it again tonight. <laughs> and so, I mean, I take a little, you know, oh, I hold off, hold off until maybe, you know, mid late afternoon until I just started up again. And, then, and at this point I'm calling a couple of my buddies. Hey, I'm back. I'm back. Head out to a couple of people's places who welcomed me back. Got it done that night too. And, and then the next day, uh, maybe felt a little bit of, felt a little bit of something. Didn't feel that great. And I was off to the races. It, it was, I think, two and a half months later um, of doing this, going straight back to, like, shaking in the mornings, you know, riding my bike up to Rite Aid at 7.55 in the morning to buy a magnum of wine when they open the doors at 8 a.m., uh, and then ride my bike back to my house and just pour that wine down my throat to just feel somewhat normal again so it just it not only went back to where it was it of course got worse uh at this point i would wake up in my brain 
and I would be scared to open my eyes. And so I would, and I would have a bottle of vodka under my bed and I would reach under that bed. And before I would even look around the room because I was so scared of what I would see, I would pour vodka down my throat just to open my eyes. I mean, it was like that kind of before, but of course it just progresses and, and everything is a little more intense. Um, you know, each time you, you go down, back down that road. At this point, I am off my rocker and I schedule a week trip to California. I, I don't even know how to make sense of that. It's not, it didn't make sense. Divine intervention. That's exactly what it was. Everybody, my mother, my brother, dude, why are you doing this? Dude, don't, I don't think you should go to California right now, man. You're not doing so hot. Oh, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. Ended up getting there. God, I mean, this is, this is my, this is my bottom. So I get to California. Um, I'm going to see a buddy the first night and, uh, my flight was at like 5 AM. Um, and I mean, I am drinking vodka before I get on the flight at 5 AM, you know, out of a bottle and get to California at like 11 AM. And I mean, I'm, I'm hammered. I'm hammered at 11 AM. Rent a car, Remember the guy giving me a look, but still, still, <laughs> rent, I shouldn't do this. Still, oh, it. still gave it to me. Uh, drive to my buddy's house, and I start having like panic attacks. We're, we have all these plans, and I'm just already starting to panic, and everything is starting to freak me out. And I, and I tell him I got to take a nap. I'm like, man, I've been up since you know 4 a.m. I got to go take a nap. Well, a nap just meant I passed out. Um, I even think I took a Xanax or something and jump in his bed at like noon. And then all of a sudden I'm getting kind of shaken awake at like 7 PM that night. And my buddy's like, dude, I think you need to get out of here. And I was like, ah, oh, dude, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And he's like, man, I, it's okay. I, I've got kids. You know, I, I just, I think you need to get out of here. And I'm like, did you forget about that? <laughs> oh, I didn't know anything. I mean, I just didn't know what was going on. And, and so I, I, you know, I sneak out of his back door grab my bag, go get in this car. And I mean, at this point it is, I am low, man. I am real, real low. And so I drive straight to the liquor store and sit in the parking lot of the liquor store, um, guzzling vodka and throwing up in the parking lot and then passing out in the, in the driver's seat with the car on. And then I would wake up and I didn't know where I was. And then I would kind of figure it out and I would drink vodka because I was just so down and and just scared i went in up, up into this neighborhood and i parked in front of this house and i drank and drank and drank and threw up and threw up and then passed out again and then woke up and it was like 1 a.m and i'm it's somewhere in california I, I mean where the f i don't know where the fuck i am i'm in some neighborhood near a liquor store passing out throwing up waking up and then i look in the mirror and i go all right I think you need to get back to Charlotte, Robbie, and I think you got to get back into detox. Like it was like the first time that I'd said, "All right, I've taken it far too far again. Mm -hmm. Now I don't know what to do. I can't do this on my own." Uh, and I literally looked into the mirror and spoke to myself and said, "All right, you got to get to a hotel near the airport and fly out tomorrow morning." And I had a six-day trip planned. I mean, I was driving up to LA and seeing all these people, so I made the decision to go home and get myself back into some sort of help. And lo and behold, I got a DUI on the way to that hotel. Pull off on some exit, pull up to a guard gate, and I've got a bottle of vodka in the passenger seat, and I can't even hold my eyes open. And the guy is like, uh, can I help you? And... <laughs> 
I mean, who knows what came out of my mouth. I parked the car. He put some cuffs on me, puts me down. They take me to a, a drunk tank where you, I'm laying on the floor on like a, you know, yoga mats with like people that are homeless and I'm laying down and all I can remember are, and I hate this and this is so gross, but all I remember are the farts fucking room full of people farting and I'm laying there starting to shake because I don't have any alcohol in my system and it's been six or seven hours and I am starting to shake and I am scared and I'm panicking and I'm about to throw up and I don't know where I am or what to do and I walk up to the lady and I'm like I've got to get out of here and she's like you can leave it doesn't matter we're, we're not the law call a cab go to a Marriott order a, a half gallon of absolute to the room and start drinking again. Uh, and then call my brother and tell him what happened. And he finds this lady out in California who can come pick me up and get me into like this little kind of two week boot camp. Ultimately, and because I said, I, d I don't need rehab. I've, I've been to three already. Like, I know what it is. I know what I need. I just need to get the alcohol out of my system and I will get back on track. So we find this lady that can do that. She was my angel. She showed up the next morning and drove me to a detox. I drank a glass of vodka on the way there, and that was Cinco de Mayo 2006, and it was the last sip of alcohol that I have put into my system. So I stay out there for two weeks and, and do the little two-week boot camp and then come back to Charlotte, and I start digging. I start digging out of my hole, man. I get a job. I start taking classes. I am sober. I'm active in the community. I'm active in AA. Uh, I... I over time, uh, get my girlfriend back, and uh, life starts to take shape. So now, now you're in Charlotte. You're back with Ash. You got a job. You're not drinking. You're integrated back into the community. Yep. What were some of the things that you started to realize about not having alcohol in your life that, that were positive? Godly, man. And I say this because, you know, a lot of times newly sober people they can they can kind of grieve their alcohol or their drug use but when you removed it were, were was there like a white knuckling stage that went on where you were kind of like still grieving your alcohol use or self-pity or where your depression spiked so it was not the way that you just described it okay because it was the opposite it was full on pink cloud. It was, I am so ecstatic to have this fucking substance out of my life yeah. and out of my body and out of my brain. I, it, it was, I mean, it, dude, that shit was my devil. For 10 years straight, it was just struggle, 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 addiction, addiction, addiction. And so when I finally got to that place of just full-blown surrender, I mean, it's been 15 and a half years. I have never considered drinking. I mean, I've, you know, whatever, fantasized, oh, what it would be like and all that kind of stuff. I have never come fucking close. Yeah. Never even come close. I don't want anything to do with it. There was obviously some cleanup. <laughs> there was a lot that I needed to do to build a life because I was building from scratch. I mean, a hundred percent, but I started and just, it took time. And I do, I, I realize that, that there are a lot of people that have a lot of cleanup to do and, and, and life is not all roses when they get sober and, and, and shit, mine wasn't either. But what I didn't have was the panic attacks and the anxiety. And, and I swear that was the driver of so many of my 
kind of compulsive, yeah. erratic decisions to, to do just whatever it took to fix those things. And, and that shit was gone. I mean, I, of course, I was still a little depressed and down and guilt-ridden and shameful for all the things that I had done over the past 10 years or whatever, but man, it was nothing like what it was, and so it was exponentially better. Yeah. Other than AA, like, what were some of the new things that you were doing? The biggest tools that helped me were th- was the fact that I decided to go into this field of work. I knew after this last time that this was going to be my path, was, yeah. to, was to help others. Uh, that were battling this stuff. It was it was just too intrinsic into my life, and so I totally got it. I understood what I had been through, and I knew like how I felt when I was doing it, and I understood, and I was in touch with how I felt when I went through the detox and the coming out on the other side. That I felt like I had so much to to give and share to help people that I decided I needed to go, or I wanted to go to uh, a grad school for mental health counseling, and. Starting those classes and starting that training and doing all that stuff was kind of the other side of... of, Did you do that immediately? Pretty much. Uh, I started taking prereq courses in Charlotte, and then I got into graduate school up in uh, Portland, Maine, which is where my wife or my girlfriend at the time was doing her medical residency. So I moved up there with her and went to grad school. I mean, I wasn't even really an AA up there. I was just fucking living life, man. I was just free of like all these addictions and just studying and thinking very clearly. And it's still life. It's still tough. I was still dealing with emotional stuff. I still am today. When did you start really moving more into the wellness space? When did you start thinking about how much the normalization of alcohol use in our culture was a problem. When did yeah. you make that shift? Yeah, so when I moved back to Charlotte, I wasn't working in this field. So because I was a stay-at-home dad for like five years, um, I took a break on working in the field of, of mental health. And so when I moved to Charlotte, um, our beloved guest of Episode 8, Sarah Olin, helped me make some decisions around my career path and helped me jump back in the world of mental health. And so I opened up a private practice and started doing what I do now. But in that time, I'm looking at a a lot of my clients, which at this point is like word of mouth. So it's like people I know and like a lot of my friends or at least friends of friends. And I'm just working with all these people whose families are, are, I mean, they're fucking falling apart. and, Mm -hmm. And there's husbands and fathers and wives and mothers and children that are just battling this culture of alcohol. And yeah, there's drugs too, but like I'm, I'm really honed in on the alcohol because that was just such a part of our lives and such a, that was my, I mean, that was my drug of choice. hundred percent, hundred percent. The other stuff came with alcohol. I just felt like based on my personal experience, based on my academics, based on the work I was doing, that I had a lot of knowledge around the truths inside the world of alcohol. And I do know, and, and we all know, there's such a high level of, of denial in that world that what I knew, I felt like people need to know. And, and, and there's just this obligation, this responsibility that I felt based on the, the whirlwind that I had been through in my life 
to share this with people. And it was just my way of trying to, to help others was to inform them of all these things that I have seen and done. When I was thinking about how I was going to inform people, you know, uh, uh, around all this information, it was, somebody was like, well, dude, why don't you just try a podcast at the time? I felt like there's definitely sobriety podcasts, there's recovery podcasts, there's addiction podcasts, there's people who share their stories. And I love those and I listen to them, but I wanted to be different. I wanted to reach more people because I felt like the information I had and the people I wanted to share it with were not the people that were at, in the throes of addiction. I felt like there was some sort of prevention method or strategy that needed to be implemented in what I was trying to do. The idea is to help people not get to this place mm-hmm. where their lives are being destroyed. And so there, there's always this prevention in the, in the back of my mind with, with everything I was looking to do. It's not clean up the mess, which I already do for work. It's, it's inform people of the mess that is potentially to come. And so that's, that's how the podcast was born. Um, you know, you and I discussed it. You, 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 know, you and I shared missions and just personal kind of stances on things. And, it, and we were both like nodding our heads the whole time. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. That, that, that makes, I think this makes sense. I think this makes sense. What if we come at it from a wellness perspective and we just talk about alcohol in general and, and, and how it influences us, you know, good or bad. Like, let's not just trash it. It's not about all alcohol bad and, and everybody that drinks needs to stop it. That, that, that's not reality. That's not the world we live in. Let's, let's look at it from a different angle. Let's normalize the conversation. Let's try to get through to people who wouldn't ordinarily listen to this kind of stuff and see what happens. And here we are. If the listeners could take one thing from your journey and the lessons you've learned, what would it be? The first thing that comes to mind, number one, is that life is not easy. Life is not comfortable. It never is and it never will be. Using artificial substances to better those things does nothing but create more pain, discomfort, and struggle. Whether that is right in front of your face or it is deep-rooted, that is my experience, that life is hard, and to make it harder makes no sense. Yet we are trained to do the one thing that makes it harder, and it's become something that's normal, and it's something that we need to be more aware of, and that's what I want to leave with everybody with. Perfect. Well, this was great, man. Mm. Thanks for being vulnerable. Yeah, well, you're welcome. Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope that was helpful, and I hope that was uh, everything that you uh, hoped it'd be. It's an interesting life so far, and I've got a lot more to do, and I plan on doing it, so stay tuned. People. Cheers to that. Love you all. Love you, Rob. All right, brother. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice. If you feel like you may need professional help, here are some resources. For the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704 372 6969 or visit the blanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.